Thank you so much for that. John chapter 17. John chapter 17. As we began this chapter last week, I talked about the fact that this, in a sense, is Jesus' prayer. We, we think of the Lord's prayer in Our Father which art in heaven, and we know that prayer, and that's really a model prayer, a template, though we uh, can pray that as a, a prayer, obviously. In a sense, this is the Lord's prayer. This is Christ's prayer. This is entitled uh, by some as Christ's high priestly prayer. I mentioned last week that there are entire books written just about this one chapter. It is such a rich chapter. And we're uh, going to take a few weeks. I know uh, that it is going to take us a, a little while to work our way through this chapter uh, we'll take a, a, a break from this chapter uh, next week for Easter Sunday. I want to bring uh, an Easter message. But this chapter is so rich in, 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 a, in a way we even see deeper into the heart of our Savior. God is so good to us to reveal in, in a way that in, in the Bible, is, the Bible is, is not... A religious book. I know that it is seen that way. I know to the world it is uh, described that way. And yes, in one sense it is a religious book, but this is the Word of God. This is God's revelation to us, and it is His desire to have a personal relationship with us. And we see the heart of God, we see the heart of our Savior in this chapter in such a deep and in such a rich way. And we come to chapter 17 of the book of John, and we look at verse number 6, and we've already seen in the first five verses, Christ prays for himself. But then we come to this verse, verse number 6, and we see Christ's prayer specifically for the apostles, for his disciples. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me, out of the world. So yes, this section, really all the way down through verse 19, this section really is all about Christ praying for the apostles. There were 11 of them that were with him there in the garden that night, shortly before he was taken away to be crucified. We know that Judas had already left to betray Christ. We know that later Matthias would be added, and then of course Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. So Christ is praying specifically for his apostles. That would be the primary application. But we understand that as Christ followers, as his disciples, not apostles in that sense, as they were specially gifted men, specifically called by Christ, who had physically seen him and been called by him and were given apostolic gifts, uh, there are no living apostles today in that specific sense. There are sent ones. The general definition for the term apostles is sent ones. And yes, God sends, God calls us into various areas of ministry and service and vocational ministries. So in that sense, all those who are true believers are apostles in a general definition, in a general sense as sent ones called out by God to serve him as Christ followers. But we often think of apostles specifically in the sense of those who are given the apostolic gifts called by Christ and given those specific gifts as 
the foundation of the church, as Ephesians 2 and verse 20 refers to. So Christ's prayer is specifically for them, but we can make some secondary applications to us and to our lives as well as Christ followers, as a genuine believer, one who was born again, who was turned from his or her sin and turned to Christ in saving faith. We know that in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 that Christ had prayed for his apostles before he chose them. We also see that in Mark chapter 3 in verses 13 through 19. And then in John 6 and verse 15, Jesus prayed for his apostles while he was with them, during his ministry with them. He would go into a quiet place, into the mountain to pray. And then we know in Romans 8 and verse 34, in Hebrews 7 and verse 25, that Christ continues to intercede for his own. And we have spent some time looking at the last couple of chapters at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is the ministry of intercession. So Christ prayed for his apostles before he called them. While he was ministering to them, he's praying for them right now in this chapter as he is getting ready to go to the cross and to die for the sins of man and then to be buried and then to rise again and then ascend up in the glory 40 days later. He's praying for them now and then he continues to intercede for them and for us as true believers as we just indicated from Romans 8, 34 and Hebrews 7 and verse 25. So we see in verse number 6, first of all, that the disciples, the disciples were given to Christ. The Father gave these men to him, unto the men, verse 6, which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. The Father, of course, is not an Indian giver, if you've ever heard that term, maybe growing up, you had a, a buddy, you had a friend, and they would give you something, and then immediately they would want to take it back. And we would refer to them as an Indian giver. I have no idea where that, that came from. I'm sure there is some story or history behind that. This verse, as we have already looked at in verses 1 through 5, this verse is once again another proof text for eternal security. Once saved, always saved. Those whom the Father gave to Christ are secure in Him. They are kept by the power of God unto salvation. No man can pluck them out of the Father's hands. God would not take back what He had given to His Son, Jesus Christ. Now notice... What we read here at the end of verse 6, they have kept thy word. This is such a fascinating, just securing text for us as believers. They were kept, excuse me, they were given to Christ by the Father. The security of the believer, the security of their call the security that those apostles would need as they went forth, as they preached the gospel, as they were the foundation of the church, Christ being the chief cornerstone, they would, as he had prepared them already, 
in the discourses in the upper room, preparing them for persecution. They were going to be the ones whom God would use to write, to record his revelation, the word of God, the inspired word. Many of them would be used to pen the very words, moved by the Holy Spirit. They were going to face incredible hostility. They were going to deal with all kinds of resistance. They were going to go into various parts of the world and preach the gospel and take the gospel to all of these areas of the world. And they were going to face some loneliness, some persecution. They were going to have to deal with some resistance. They were going to have to deal with, as Paul would, the thorn in the flesh. They were going to have to deal with their own physical shortcomings. And they were going to have to deal with illness and sickness. They were going to have to deal with ships that were torn by the seas. Weather and all kinds of natural catastrophes. They were going to have to deal with all this. Do you think that they would need the security of Christ to hold on to as they were dealing with all of those afflictions and tribulations and trials and resistance? Yes. Think about all that we see going on around us, from the tragedy on Monday down in Nashville to the headlines, to the politics, to all the resistance from the world. As Jesus knew the disciples would face this, as he knows that we face this, he reminded them again at the end of chapter 16, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Christ knew the apostles would need the security of Christ as they went forward with the gospel, as they preached the truth of the word of God. And here we see this word world in verse number six. They had been called out of the world. This word world is used 18 times in this chapter alone. This shows, once again, the contrast between the eternal and the temporary. It reminds us again of the necessity of personal and ecclesiastical separation from the world. The apostles were called out of the world and they were going to reach the world with the gospel. They were not going to be of the world, though they were going to be in the world. And that will come later in Christ's prayer as he prays that we not be taken out of the world because he knows that we are going to have to live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We are called to live this life, to share the gospel, to be ambassadors for Christ. We have this ministry of reconciliation. We have this commission with the gospel. But we are to live in this world while not being of the world. And so we see that the apostles were called out distinct from the world. And we see that Christ keeps them as they have been given by the Father to Christ. Christ prays for them, and then they have kept thy word. They have kept the Father's word. This is such a powerful text that helps us in the security that we need as believers that no doubt the apostles needed. 
The prayer of Christ, the prayers of Christ, his intercession was part of the way the Father would keep them. But notice, it is the keeping of the word of God that is also hand in glove, a part of their security in their keeping. This again speaks to the word of God as the instrument used by God to keep us. Yes, the Holy Spirit. Yes, God the Father. Yes, Christ. Yes, prayer. But we see, again, the word of God. They have kept thy word. Have they obeyed perfectly? No. It is speaking, yes, ultimately to their salvation. They have been saved. They have kept Christ's word in that they have believed on him. They have declared him. They have turned from their sin. They have given up all and they have come to Christ and they are following him. And they have been reminded of that again and they have declared that once again, even in these hours that they have been in the upper room and as Christ has given these discourses. But I can't help but see in this text once again that it is the keeping of the word of God. It is the obedience to the word of God that once again shows evidence, gives evidence, and keeps us in Christ. This means that as we have been saved, we then are to live the sanctified life. This is not much different than where Paul says, walk worthy of the calling wherewith ye are called. You have been saved by the word of God. Now live by the word of God. Live it out. He knows that these disciples, these apostles, they are saved. They are trusting Christ. But they are going to continually have to be kept by the power of the word of God as they live obediently and faithfully by the truth of the word of God. There is security. There is peace. In the world we have tribulation, but Christ has overcome the world. How do we have security? How do we have peace? How do we have strength? How does the peace of God rule in our hearts and minds by Christ Jesus through prayer? Through the promise of the word of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through claiming the promise that God has given us to, the, to, to Christ, to his son, and as we live obedient lives, faithful to the word of God, there is a strengthening, there is a sustaining, there is a sanctifying effect in our lives. We must stay strong in the word. We must stay faithful and obedient to the word of God. It will strengthen us, it will sustain us, and it will sanctify us as Christ would even pray in this prayer, really two requests of the Father. He speaks of the disciples, of all of those who trust Christ as their Savior, being secure in the Father. He speaks of that request, and all that truly come to Christ in saving faith are kept by the power of God into salvation, secure in Christ. Romans 6 talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We looked at that a couple Sunday nights ago, that we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ, immersed in Christ. But then he also prays for the sanctification of the believers. Another request that we'll see here in this chapter. So they have kept thy word. 
Christ, as he's praying here in verse 6, we see that the disciples were given to him, to Christ, by the Father. But we also see, as we work our way down into verses 7 and 8, we see also that Christ reveals to them and has revealed to them and will continue to reveal to them the words and the works of the Father. Verse 7, Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. A reminder again, that they have seen the evidence of the Father. They have seen the evidence that Christ is the God-man, that he is the Son of God. As Peter declared along with the other apostles in Matthew 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This truth will continue to sustain them and strengthen them as they go forward preaching the gospel and serving the Lord as his apostles. They are reminded of this great truth as he prays for them. Now there are some, as I've done my study, there are some who believe that Christ literally prayed this prayer in the hearing of the apostles there that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's possible that he had also already gone ahead of them into the garden and was praying and then was coming back and finding them asleep. So it could be that they literally heard him pray this prayer for them. Or it could be that he had already gone ahead and was praying. But either way, we see the heart of Christ. We see the assurance of their faith. We see the security of the believer. And that Christ will continue as they are the ones who will be involved in the penning of the scripture as the very God-breathed Word of God, as the Holy Spirit moves, as we know from Second, uh, Second Peter chapter number 1, the Holy Spirit moves, and they are moved by the Holy Spirit. They are going to literally be involved in recording and writing the inspired Word of God. But he is also speaking of the evidence, the assurance that they have seen and that they have heard, that they have witnessed of the works of God through Jesus Christ. And he will continue to do that, though he will not physically be present with them. He will send the Holy Spirit as he has taught them already, as we have learned from studying through chapters 14 and 15 and 16. That he will continue to be with them and continue to empower them and continue to use them, and they will Remember the word of God. They will remember the works of Christ. They will remember the very words that he spoke to them. And it will sustain them. It will strengthen them. It will help them in their service. So we see also in this passage, as we work our way down to verses 9 and 10, that because they belong to God, so they also belong to Christ. This is again a reiteration of their security in Christ. Verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. 
we have in our culture today a lot of loneliness. There's a loneliness epidemic. There are a lot of young people today. The statistics, the research, the surveys are revealing that young people in particular are struggling with anxiety and stress in the meaning of life and the purpose of life so that suicide rates and drug use are going up exponentially. There is a sense of belonging that a child needs, that mom and dad love them. Now as these DNA tests and 23andMe and these various things are, are going on and as the fracturing of society and the brokenness of the family and people entering into intentionally sterile relationships and now we have literally mail-order children where literally homosexual lesbian couples can order a child by surrogacy even from other parts of the world, and they can throw out eggs, fertilized eggs, that have certain genetic defects or don't have the right ancestry. And all of that in this loss of the anthropology that comes from Scripture, it has bred a loneliness. Who do I belong to? Where is my security? I've watched as young people, being a principal of a school for many years, I watch and I see it even to this day in other, in other ways. I watch as young people come in, as mom and dad are in fights and divorcing and all of the strife that goes with that. And they come with anxiety and stress and they can't even function at the school day. And we have to pull them aside and we have to give them comfort. And we have to give them the word of God and we have to help them. What am I saying? God knows how important security of relationships are. God knows the value of a mom and dad who bring into their home the love of God in the security of the truth of the word of God in a stable home, not a perfect home. You can ask, well, only three of them are here today. One of them is down in South Carolina. You'd have to call her. But all four of my children can give testimony to dad's failures. All of them. But I would hope to think that they could at least say that mom and dad love each other and it provides security to their home. Only by the grace of God. But we see in our culture a brokenness of relationships and insecurity. And sadly, sadly, we see the results of that, the statistics and the data. And we know that God is a father to the fatherless. And God can make up the difference by his grace and by his mercy. And God can bring the right people. And that's another reason why it's so important that we have an active and faithful church family. It is so important that our young people come to church and see Husbands and wives who have served the Lord for 30, 40, 50 years and you're living out your faith and you continue to serve the Lord and you're active. That is an incredible testimony. That is even more important than a video game in a youth center that keeps the kids entertained. It is so important that they come to church and they see older couples living out their faith. 
It brings us security. And here is Christ praying for the apostles. He is praying for them to know and to understand the bond that they have in Christ. That God has a plan for them. That God has a plan for us and that he is sanctifying us and that we have a bond in Christ and he's praying for their spiritual growth. He's praying for their purity. And all of that brings us security. And that's where we have to find our security, where we have to find our strength in a broken culture. We continue to preach and to proclaim and to teach God's ideal regarding the family. Regardless of what this world is doing and how the world redefines and how the world restructures and how the world persecutes those who simply uphold the basic, common sense, God-designed, simple truths of the Word of God regarding marriage and the family, regarding maleness and femaleness, we continue to proclaim God's eternal truth regarding those areas. That's where true security comes from. But eternal security comes only through Christ, through having a personal relationship with him. And Christ is praying for his disciples to have that security as they are going to face resistance. As Paul later, I know he wasn't here in their midst, but he would be called by Christ as an apostle. And in, 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 in Paul and even, even John, and, and, and we know from historical records, other apostles, they would be taken and they would be placed in dungeons. John would go to the Isle of Patmos and experience extreme aloneness. I'm not saying loneliness, but aloneness. Where would John find his security and his strength as he was alone on the Isle of Patmos? He had to find it in Christ. And that's where we have to continue to come back to the promises of God's word. And Christ is praying for that. And then can I make another application here? As we read down, he says, I pray for them in verse 9. I pray not for the world. Now, understanding in the context here, is this Christ having a callousness or a disregard for the needs of the unsaved? Of course not. Of course not. He's not saying that he doesn't care for the unsaved. He's not saying that there isn't a compassion. Of course, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ is in just a a short time going to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. Knowing that not everybody is going to receive him as their savior. But in the context of this prayer, Christ is praying for believers, specifically for the apostles. And later in verse 20, specifically then for believers in general, we're making some other applications from the apostles to ourselves right now. But I can't help but notice as we read these words, I pray for them, I pray not for the world. What is our prayer for the unsaved? Christ's prayer for believers cannot be the same prayer that he would pray for the unsaved. So what is the prayer for the unsaved? Our prayer for the unsaved is that Christ would lift the veil of blindness to their sin. That the unsaved would see their sinfulness. 
that they would obey the command to repent and turn to Christ in saving faith. Our prayer for the unsaved is not that they would become more moral and self-improved, but that they would see their sin and see Christ as the only way of salvation. I fear that as churches, as professing believers, as they try to soften the gospel, as they try to dress up in worldly fashions the gospel, I fear that the unsaved become more comfortable in their sinfulness. When Christ doesn't pray for the unsaved to be more moral, to be more self-improved, to get an extra help from society and from education and from cultural supports. No, Christ's prayer for the unsaved is totally different from his prayer for the saved, for the apostles and for those who have trusted him. Which, again, reminds us of our need to share the gospel, of our need to have a burden and a compassion for the lost, and for us to pray for the unsaved, that they would understand the truthfulness regarding their sin, that that veil of blindness would be lifted off and that they would see Christ and Christ alone as the only way of salvation, not adding Christ to their life, not making up a new Jesus after their own liking, but see the true Christ, the Christ of the Bible, and see one's sinfulness before a holy God and repent of that sin and turn in saving faith to Christ. I fear that sometimes the unsaved because the church will not faithfully proclaim the clear truths of God's word and will not preach on sin, I fear that sometimes the unsaved are left in their sinfulness, but they get a big pat on the back for giving it a good college try and doing their best and being sincere. And, oh, there's a wideness to God's mercy. And if you just try hard enough, you'll get there on your own. And that is not what Christ prays. We know the truth of the word of God. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And it is the goodness and the forbearance of God that leads men to repentance. Repentance from what? From their sin. Turning to Christ and saving faith. So Christ prayed not for the world in this way. Yes, Christ is concerned. He loves the world. He is going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. God so loved the world. But his prayer for the apostles, for us as believers, for the saved, for his followers, it is very different than the prayer for the unsaved. The prayer for them is that they would come to him in saving faith. We also continue in this same theme in verses 11 and 12 that Christ keeps the disciples and now I am no more in the world. There we see the word world again. And then we see it again in the next sentence. But these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Again, eternal security. There are good people, I believe saved people, 
who believe that, yes, they are saved, but they have to work really super hard to keep themselves from becoming unsaved. And there are whole groups of people, good people, well-meaning people. I've met people like this through the years. Some of them are, they're on various spectrums of this. I've met people, talked to people who believe that if they said a mean word to their spouse, got in the car and got in an accident, a fatal accident, that they would die and go to hell. Even though they had turned from their sin, repented of their sin, and placed their faith and trust in Christ, because they had committed a sin right before they died, they were now unsaved. I've met people somewhere in between that, where, well, it's not quite just one sin and I'm done. I lose my salvation. But it's, you know, i got to go a little further than that. I, ha- I have to, to, to backslide a, a certain way to a certain point. And they they live in this state of insecurity constantly. Have I done enough to keep my salvation? Have I done enough good works to keep myself from falling out, falling away, falling off, being denied the fact that I'm a child of God, I'm removed from the family? And then there's always that, that one that, that is the, the, the full apostate. I believe that a full apostate is one who never trusted Christ as their Savior in the first place. They came out from us because they were never a, of us in the first place. But we see once again, it is not my works that saved me, so how can it be my works that keep me saved? We all struggle with the carnal Christian. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul had to address it with the Corinthians, a very carnal church. But here we see, once again, going down to verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none, none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Reiterating once again the security of the believer in Christ. I know he's specifically referring to the apostles. But by secondary application, the truth remains for us as believers. As saved individuals. Once saved, always saved. And we see that security here once again. And then we see in verse 13. And now come I to thee. And these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Oh, the world is chasing after the elusive butterfly of happiness. And we can get little jolts of happiness. We can get little shots of happiness. We can play a video game and we can win the the level. We can enjoy lots of things that God has blessed us with, that God has given us in his grace that can bring uh, happiness. All kinds of wonderful blessings of God that bring a happiness to our life. We're thankful. We're not to make a God, a little g-god, or an idol out of happiness, which is what the world has done. The world has made a little g God, idol, out of entertainment, fun. And I would deal with this, as, again, as a, as a school principal. And, you know, learning has to be fun all the time. You know, math is just such a horrible, torturous thing that somebody invented years ago just to torture small children, right? Math. Science is probably second after that. 
And so the only reason why we ever have to go to school and learn anything is just because God wants us to be tortured as young people. We're never going to use this anymore anyway, right? And so we have to make learning fun. So everything has to be fun. And I would deal with this all the time. And then you learn before long that the medium has a lot of effect on the message. So I can play Pac-Man in a, in a math game and I can learn some basic math. But it's really hard to teach algebra and chemical reactions and trigonometry and statistics and Diffie-Q for those who understand differential equations. I learned that one just in the last few weeks. It's really hard to play Pac-Man with all of those upper level maths and sciences. It might be fun for an elementary level for a while, and then what happens is it's, oh, it's just all about, if we can't have fun, then what's the point in doing it? If it doesn't make me feel good, then why even bother? I was listening to a podcast the other day, and I just thought it was so good, the point that this person made. It is almost a mocking by our culture for anybody to ever choose the harder way of doing things. I, I dealt with it in school. I deal with it with, with ministry. Because what do we want? We want happiness to come in the form of a pill. We want happiness to come in a shot that we just give ourselves. We want happiness to come in every kind of way at our fingertips, and we have been lied to by a phone. I have it somewhere. And so now we think that we have this 24-7 pipeline to happiness so I can get an eight-second fix constantly. And that then deceives our brain into thinking that the only way that I can ever be happy is to have entertainment, to have a joy, to have a quick fix. And we are being dumbed down and we are literally unwilling to do any kind of spiritual discipline or any kind of spiritual service or any kind of spiritual sacrifice when it is considered in Romans 12 as our expected, our reasonable service. This is just what we should do. He sent his son to die for us as ungodly sinners. As the, the song says, such a worm as I. And Christ says what? That his joy is fulfilled in his disciples. And now come I to thee in these things I speak in the world. That they, might have my, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Christ's joy. The joy of the Lord. Thankfully, we have many wonderful things that God has richly blessed us with to enjoy. But if we just eat ice cream and cake and gummy bears on top all the time, we are going to die of malnutrition and diseases. Now, there used to be a day before all of our modern technology where people literally were dying of certain diseases because they didn't have basic vitamins and minerals in their food. Now we can actually take white bread, which is basically just mush that you can ball up into a ball, and now we can import vitamins and minerals into just about anything now, right? So white bread, which we were not allowed to eat growing up, we had to eat wheat bread. And my mom was sometimes so particular that it had to be enriched, unbleached, 
whole grain wheat bread. So I had the best bread of everybody in the school. So we still, to this day, we buy wheat bread. It doesn't have to be enriched, unbleached, whole grain, but it does have to be wheat bread. But we can take and we can inject. So now you can take pills for your veggies. I'm not going to advertise the company. But there are literally companies out there now who sell veggies in a bottle. So you don't have to eat your, I don't know, your Brussels sprouts and your asparagus. I don't like those either. But I do like broccoli and carrots and some of those other things. But we can inject vitamins and... Everything is about quick and easy, convenient, comfortable, happy feelings. And we live in a sensual culture. And where does Christ, what does he pray? Does he pray for his apostles to find joy in the fun elements of Roman and Greek culture? As they're out serving the Lord, as they're out preaching the gospel? Does he say, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not condemning an amusement park but does he say to the apostles as he prays for them i hope they can find an amusement park on the roman roads that they're going to preach the gospel because they might want a little amusement to get them away from the hard stuff not condemning amusement parks but we have so become distracted that we idolize the diversions instead of god being first And seeking first the kingdom of God and setting our affections on things above. And we violate the first command. We've been talking about this in our Bible study on campus. About no other gods before him. The first commandment. We violate that all the time. But we talk about it like we're the rich young ruler. Oh, I've never violated. I've kept that commandment from my early days. I don't have an idol on my shelf. We have all kinds of other idols. No other gods before me. No graven image. Take not the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's more than just saying, oh my, and then adding God's name as a cuss word. It's more than just that. It's living a life that is making God's name vanity. That's making light of the things of God. And where does Christ pray? What does he pray for? That they'll have their joy in him. If we find our joy, if we find our satisfaction in Christ, and we claim His promises, we live by His principles, we obey His commands, we find joy. We find satisfaction. And then, yes, God is such a good God that He many times blesses us with many other things. But we can never let those other things take the place of seeking first the kingdom of God. Christ prayed for his apostles. He will pray for us. We've only made it to verse 13. We'll pick up in a couple weeks in verse 14. But he prayed that their joy would be found in him. They were going to face persecutions. They were going to be in natural catastrophes, weather-related incidents as they're on boats. They were going to deal with Weather, walking, as we understand, some of the apostles went down into Africa and braved the deserts and the ugly terrain going down into Africa and into sub-Saharan Africa and over into Europe and Asia on roads without first-class seating on a 747 with Wi-Fi and earbuds. 
They walked, they rode on the back of a donkey or a horse or a camel. And they dealt with all of that, plus all the aches and pains. Paul himself with the thorn in the flesh. And he is still praying at the end. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ's prayer for the apostles was answered fully in the life that they lived for him. Were they perfect people? No. But he kept them. And we are experiencing the blessings, one of which is the canon of Scripture. And they were kept by the Word. And they found their joy in Him without all the 21st century amenities. And they loved Him to the end and they served Him to the end. May that be true of each and every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for this prayer that gives us just a glimpse of the heart of God and Christ. Whose prayer was, yes, for our joy, the joy of the apostles. But a joy that's only found in you. As you keep them, as we find our security and our joy and our satisfaction and our fulfillment in you. Lord, you've blessed us with so many other Things, but Lord, may none of those other things get in the way of finding our full joy and satisfaction in you and you alone. Thank you for this prayer. Thank you for these promises. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together today that we might share in these truths. Help us to live them out. Lord, even now, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, Lord, may they come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and turn to you in saving faith today. As believers, Lord, renew once again, our love for you and keep our focus on you and seeking first the kingdom of God and laying up treasures in heaven. And Lord, help us to walk worthy of the calling which you have called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we'll find in our hymnals, Jake's going to come and lead us in our closing hymn, 491.